Hey, good afternoon. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. Coming up right now, it's time for Radio Free Bridgeport with our own Mr. John Daly. Broadcasting from the community of the future. Live from the co-prosperity sphere, this is Radio Free Bridgeport. And now your host, Mr. John Daly. Hey everybody, Happy New Year. Welcome to Radio Free Bridgeport. Jamie, good to see you again. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, we took a little break off there, and uh, now we're back. Well, it was nice. It was good. How was your holiday, by the way? It was great. It was a lot of fun. Uh, ran into our good friends, the Klonskis. They had a nice uh, holiday party and New Year's party. Um, and uh, I was able to listen to the Level Eater new prologue. Oh, that's Very right. exciting stuff. Yes, that's I coming virtually up in two started weeks. a petition for the... Undertown Lamplighters Union. Nice. Well, Kyle, you know, we, we do have a new update from Kyle, by the way, uh, touching on some things that actually, t- literally touching on some things that happened in Bridgeport over this past fall. So that's going to be exciting at the top of the hour. And, uh, you know, some not so great things happened over the break, but we can get into that later. We'll get into that later on. We do actually, we've got a great show today. So uh, coming to the studio and joining us great uh, friend. for the first time in quite a while. Yeah, Peter Wild is here. Uh, we have, I think that, what is going on out there? The Sunshine Boys, the Sunshine Boys, I think are warming up. That's our band. That's going to be at five o'clock. Which is amazing because the Sunshine Boys was the name of the poster that the Maniac actually created, which got him on stage with President Bill Clinton and then, uh, the nominee Carrie. In Uh both instances, he had a poster that said the Sunshine Boys. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> which was uh, also a boot bush, no war sign. Okay. Um, which was in Time Magazine again. Okay, well, you haven't heard uh, much from the maniac lately, but maybe, maybe we got to call him up and see if he can give us something clean to put on the air. <laughs> we'll it's see. always difficult with the maniac. Peter, uh, welcome. Yeah, Peter, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me on. So, a lot to talk about, Peter. Uh, Peter, first of all, for, for listeners who don't know who you are, why don't you give us the potted history? John and I, of course, know you pretty well, but... Tell your own story for a second here. Oh, gosh. I've been in the uh, soccer team startup business for over 30 years, uh, with the highest profile one being our own Chicago Fire, uh, along with the Chicago Red Stars uh, and uh, Chicago Power and Chicago Riot on the indoor uh, circuits. But really, the Chicago Fire, I think, is what I'm most known for, starting uh, launching the fire in 1997 in Major League Soccer. And uh, uh hanging on there for about eight years until leaving at the end of the 2005 season with a few rings on my finger, courtesy of uh, head coach Bob Bradley and uh, team captain Peter Novak and uh, several other illustrious stars. Yeah, and of course, uh, won the Open Cup, won the league, uh, and you did it very early, too. The first year. Yes. So, And I covered that that team, as a matter of fact. That was back when I was actually writing about soccer. So. We, we set the bar too high too soon. <laughs> One of my biggest mistakes. Yeah. You don't want to succeed in the first year. Yeah. You want to build to a crescendo. <laughs> but you've also, you did with the, uh, the Indy 11, right, out there, and you just got out of a gig in Madison, Wisconsin, where you launched a team there. Uh, and now you're working for the second division, third division, fourth division, overarching body, right? Correct. So let's back up just a second for people that, you know, people may be listening to the show. And Peter, obviously, it, it, it's a wondering funny business. Wondering who the F DC United is. Yeah, we could be wondering that. But it, it's a funny business, you know, because uh, soccer, when, when you started out doing it, the idea that you were going to be somebody that was an expert in starting up a soccer team or a soccer league uh, was frankly almost comical. You know what I mean? Uh, we'd had a number of leagues in this country that had failed. Uh, soccer was not a highly popular sport. 
uh, and most of the soccer that people consumed uh, was international. Now, you fast forward for today, and, and Peter, you know, to give you the credit that you're due, you know, you uh, were at the forefront of creating a league that has now survived. I think we're 26, 27 years in. My math is terrible, but we're, we're 1996 in. 1996, it started. We're, yeah. we're in there. So uh, the league's still here. It's expanding to 30 teams, which we're going to talk about as well. Uh, has the picture, however, changed for you? Has, has this business undergone a shift where – Again, you know, in 1996, people people looked at me like I had two heads when I said I write about soccer for a living. They're like, you do? And I know people said the same thing about, you know, you're going to start a soccer team you, in America? You are? Has the business substantially changed? Because I can tell you on the writing side, it has not. People will still look at you as if you have two heads if you're writing yeah, about soccer. Yeah, I, I think from a, um, a spectator standpoint, it absolutely has changed dramatically, not just in a 30-year window, but even in a 10-year window. I think in those early days of Major League Soccer, the spectator reliance was on youth soccer for most of the MLS teams and their families. And there was not much of an audience uh, from the general, what we would consider a mainstream general market. And in the last 10 years, I think that's changed quite a bit. And it's a result of a number of things, certainly the aging of America, uh, the soccer generation, you know, those kids that played the sport have grown up. Uh, but it's got to be much more than that because there were kids playing the sport back in the 70s and 80s in large numbers, and they didn't even give a darn about watching the sport on television. What's changed is they do care now about watching it, and that's a byproduct of several things, most notably the access to European soccer on handhelds, on laptops, on television, 24-hour soccer channels, but even something like the FIFA video game. Uh, and it's mainstreamed it in this um, market segment, uh, urban and suburban, um, you know, under 40s, millennials and in, in, in Gen Ys, I guess. Uh, and so now it's become mainstream among those that audience, and obviously new Americans as well, it's uh, become uh, a, a legitimate sport. And uh, you, you add these uh, niche audiences, and it's no longer a niche; it's now uh, mainstream for a desirable uh, advertising demographic. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, thank you for pointing out that uh, the early days of the MLS were really largely based on youth soccer sales. I remember talking with John Barazzi back in the day; he ran the Miami Fusion and. Uh, uh, good guy. You know, he could not fill that stadium without getting youth sales in, in Broward County, which is not the easiest thing to do in, in Broward County. And I remember, you know, the fire were a little unusual because, I mean, John and I went to those games back then. And, and Soldier Field was legitimately, that was a legit crowd. You know, I, I, unlike some other Major League Soccer teams that I could mention that maybe exist in Kansas City, they were not padding. You guys were not padding your stats. If 30K, you said, were at Soldier Field, they were. Uh, and while you did definitely have a big youth audience base, to my mind, the Chicago Fire were one of the few teams, I'd say maybe L.A. was another one, that actually had um, people coming from that younger urban core coming out to see the games. There were three teams, L.A., Chicago, and D.C. United. <clears throat> D.C., of course. When, when, um, when I was hired – when I was hired by uh, – um, AEG, or actually was the Anschutz Corporation right. back then, uh, to start up the team, I did a best practices tour of MLS. I went around to the existing 10 teams at the time. I frankly learned what, what not to do from almost every team. I, I learned what to do from DC United uh, on and off the field. Uh, Kevin Payne and Bruce Arena uh, were the 
only people that were not relying on Sunil Gulati in the league office to handpick their players and say, this is who you're going to have. They, they took players that the league offered them to them and they wanted them, uh, but they also uh, went out and scouted and and signed Marco Echeverri as, as for one example. And Jaime Marino. Yep. Uh, yeah. Some uh, Tony Sana uh, from <clears throat> right, me actually. He stole Tony Sana from yeah. from Minnesota Thunder, which was another team I, I started. Uh, and then um, in the stands in the community, they were promoting themselves as authentic, real soccer. And you know, even the name, you know, they made, you know, they, they were originally given the name Revolution. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, they're going to be that. DC Revolution or Washington yeah. Revolution. And Kevin Payne said, "No, no, we want a more authentic name." You can <clears throat> argue about United all you want, but it, it was probably better for their purposes than Revolution. Uh, but the fan experience was authentic and legitimate. They had. Um, Hardcore supporters in different parts of the of RFK Stadium. Yeah. Uh, they had Barra Brava and El Norte <clears throat> in one part. Uh, they had the Screaming Eagles in another. And the atmosphere, the environment they created was uh, like no other in American soccer. And we frankly stole that in Chicago. Uh, we allowed the fans to create the atmosphere, the Polish ultras and the barn burners. And they generated an atmosphere at Soldier Field uh, that was amongst the best in, in American soccer. You talked about the um, number of teams that you've been involved in. You talk about the beginning of, of the league. One of the things that I've been fascinated with um, in getting to know you and getting to know your family and friends on the South Side is your love of baseball and your love of sport in general. Yeah, you're um, a huge White Sox fan, of course. And Amen. and particularly that of being a fan of, of Bill Veck. I recently saw a letter, which I had not known that story, and, and you put on and um, you, had, you had talked about how you had applied to a number of uh, teams, and, and that was a, a beginning experience in your career. Yeah, it's interesting. When I posted that, there's a number of rejection letters. When I got out of college, I, I sent applications to uh, every Major League Baseball team, except the Montreal Expos, because I didn't speak French. I, I even sent a request um, to the Chicago Cubs, which was very painful for me to, to put that in. But I desperately wanted to work in Major League Baseball, and I think I was rationalized it, uh, thinking if I did get a job with the Cubs, I would somehow, um, from the inside, try to tear them down. <laughs> good, good. good. <laughs> uh, but I, I noticed when I was looking at the, the dates after those four letters that I posted, I think one was Phillies, one was the Cardinals, and one was the Pirates. Those were all from when I graduated from college. The one, uh, the rejection note I got back from Bill Veck was actually when I was in high school. I think I was a junior in high school. Oh, wow. And he and I had actually been kind of pen pals. Uh, and you know, I had written him a letter when they hired Don Kessinger to be the manager. Um, it was a longtime Cubs uh, shortstop, and I was angry that, that, <laughs> that the Sox would hire an ex-Cub to be the manager. And he wrote me back politely <laughs> explaining why it wasn't a bad idea. I wrote him back, and I said, thank you very much. I can't believe you really wrote me back, <laughs> but I still disagree with you. And uh, I turned out to be right. Kessinger was a lousy manager. He was a lousy. Of course, they just signed Steve Ciszek, uh today, so you can another Cubs another Cubs Sox uh, pickup though. Yeah, but Bill Vick was very influential to me in that when I got that letter from him, it made such an impact on me that I kind of internalized that if I would ever be in a position like him to interact with fans, I, I would do that because I understood the impact it can have on the fans. And over my career, it's had a huge positive impact on myself as well. Now, that's an interesting point you bring up because the, the team that you were with for eight years uh, has been struggling of late, both at the gate and on the field. 
And, you know, the Chicago Fire have undergone a, a highly public rebrand. I've made the joke it's not really a rebrand if no one notices. But, <clears throat> you know, and I, know, I know you don't want to, you know, dump uh, water all over your old team. But, you know, John and I uh, have discussed this quite a bit. And it's it's been surprising to me. One of the things that the fire seemed to lose was that connection to the fan. Um, Bridgeview, I know that you wanted the team to go out to Bridgeview, and we've discussed this multiple times. And I know why you you know you moved the team to Bridgeview, uh, and there was there was good financial reasons to do it, and and it was good for Chicago to have its own home. In the bigger picture, it seems, however, as I think you probably agree, MLS teams that have been in an urban core have done better than teams that are outside of it. Uh, Frisco is a, is a good example of that. The New England Revolution, unfortunately, is a good example of that. Uh, to a certain extent, Red Bull is a good example of that. Uh, and the Chicago Fire, um, I think, very publicly fell out with some of their fan groups and some of their fans. There was a lot of um, dissatisfaction with how the team was treating the people that were you know, paying the wages and, and going to sit in the stands. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this just as an outside observer. And do you think the move back to Soldier Field and this attempt to kind of reset this franchise is is a smart one? So you you put a lot out there. In particular, you put out the rebrand, the lack of or poor community engagement, and the location of the venue. Right. And those are are three separate things. Three separate things. I'll try to attack them all. Uh, maybe in reverse order. Uh, the move to Bridgeview uh, certainly was necessary at the time for a couple, for several reasons. Two most important, I suppose, were um, programming, uh, essentially uh, control of the venue, right. uh, whether it's revenue streams or selection of, of home dates. Um, the location made it much more difficult for people in the city, especially on the north side, in the North Shore, uh, to get to the venue. The public transportation to the venue is very poor, uh, almost non-existent. And so if you're reliant on public transportation, it made it almost impossible to get to games. That being said, Chicago is a metropolitan area of about 9 million people. And if you take out 3 million of them that are on the north side of the North Shore or relying on public transportation, you still have 6 million people that uh, can get to the venue and for maybe four or five of those six million, the Bridgeview location is actually easier to drive to geographically than Soldier Field on a Saturday night. Um, so uh, I think it's too easy an excuse just to say the venue location wasn't as good as Soldier Field. That being said, if you have your your choice, everything else being equal, I, I absolutely agree Soldier Field is a, a better location to be. And it will help, especially with the key demographics, the urban core, the young adults, um, ethnic populations in Little Village, in Pilsen. Um, so I, I think the move is great. It's a very expensive move. It's costing over $60 million to extricate the lease uh, commitment at Bridgeview. And it will be expensive to play at Soldier Field if they don't fill it. Uh, the revenue streams won't be great if it's not filled. If, if they do get their 20, 25,000 fans a game, uh, from what I understand on, on the lease, uh, the revenue will be very good and um, they'll be very happy about being back there. Uh, there's issues with the playing surface when the Bears are in season, um, early in the season uh, with the weather uh, close to the lakefront and 
and that's that's another issue. Intimacy obviously is not as good as it is in Bridgeview, uh, but there's a ton of positives, especially with the location. Uh, as far as um, fan engagement, uh, that absolutely is an area they need to improve. Uh, and I think that's connected for me to the rebrand. Uh, you, I guess you can argue the aesthetics of the rebrand all day long. Um, I'm personally not a fan of it. And you know, based on social media, I think it's a large preponderance of Fire fans are not fans of, of the aesthetics of the, the, the new logo. Um, what's more concerning to me, though, is the process. I don't think they engaged the fans or the community well in the process. They weren't transparent as well as they should have been. And if they had been, it would have overcome many of the objections because there would have been a quasi buy-in by the people who now kind of have the right to complain about it. It would have taken away that right if they had given a platform to the public to weigh in throughout the process. You know, you talk about, I mean, as as a fan and, and not just as a friend, you know, you could see the difference in engagement in those different times that you're talking about in the team. Um, and it's almost like, you know, something fell out and some, some you know, I, I don't know what exactly it is, but you could, you know, it was, it was palpable. And, and Well, I think that a, a high turnover of staff, you lose some um, institutional knowledge when you have that. And uh, the staffing, uh, and this goes back, gosh, almost uh, 14, 15 years now since I left, the turnover rate had been really high for a lot of years. And so when you have these fresh faces in the front office, you have an opportunity to get some new energy and such. Uh, but I think a lot of times they were not necessarily people with experience, not people with existing engagement. Our connections or networks, and maybe they were there as a stepping stone to another opportunity somewhere else. Um, but they have an opportunity now. I think hitting the reset button, as they've done with new owner, new technical director, new head coach, um, and ostensibly new players coming in, hopefully soon, mm-hmm. um, in a new venue, this is a great opportunity to hit the reset button and institute that fan engagement that's been missing the last several years. Talking about that that opportunity and the, and the restart and and thinking about, you know, you you did an audit at the beginning of the the league you mentioned. Um, but thinking about best practices internally, those moments that the team and the things that were happening around the venue that they were creating those soccer moments. I'm thinking about when Club America played uh, at in Bridgeview and the whole place was yellow. Um, there was actually an interesting rugby moment when Heineken did a cup there with, I think it was Ireland and might, I don't think it was New Zealand, but it was a six turn, uh, a sevens tournament. Um, and then, you it was know, the, uh, all blacks B, right. Wasn't it? I think it so. Was, and then, it was the uh, B team, yeah. but Con- CONCACAF, I remember the, uh, uh, penalty shots, uh, against Mexico. And you had told, shared a story about, uh, Azteca and, and how there's a limited number of bathrooms in the, in the rafters. No, there are. I can, I, can, I can tell you about that as well. <laughs> well, after the shot, there was a, a rain of, of something being poured uh, on, the st- <laughs> on the field. Yeah, there are a limited number of bathrooms there. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the amount of international and alternative uh, field sports uh, 
uh, out there for programming is going to be interesting as it pertains to SeatGeek Stadium and Bridgeview uh, because now without the fire, there's a lot of open dates. Uh, The Red Stars, of course, the women's team will continue to play there and will now get a better choice of dates. Uh, But also there'll be more concerts and more international games and perhaps more rugby matches uh, that uh, the facility will be used for. And in some ways, I think the, the village might actually be in better shape from a revenue standpoint uh, with this change. Yeah, and of course, they, they, the village, most people may not know this, but Bridgeview put in a substantial commitment to the stadium. That was the a, whole darn thing. a huge financial commitment that was on them. Where do you see the league, and I, I'm speaking not USL, but, but MLS right now. You know, I think that it, it's hung around a lot longer than some of us. Uh, I don't want to say that the word isn't... Uh, necessarily thought, but I think a lot of us, especially in the dark days when they started contracting teams in, in Tampa, uh, you know, we thought the league was not going to be around. We thought it was NASL too. There obviously is a lot of growth. You know, Miami's coming online. Arthur Blank, excuse me, Arthur Blank in Atlanta has, has put together a pretty good team. Do you worry, however, that with some of the bigger high rolling owners that seem to want now to spend money on these franchises, that we could be looking at some of the same problems that we had in the waning days of the NASL when certain owners wanted to go in a different direction and uh, the money pressures became very real? Major League Soccer has done so many good things over the last 25 years, but perhaps the best thing they've done is manage their growth. And they've done this uh, with um, the single entity uh, structure of ownership and with a fairly hard salary cap. They've loosened that hard hard salary cap starting with the Beckham rule, allowing one exception and uh, as a designated player, then expanded it to two. Essentially now it's three per team. But those limitations almost by definition prevent the scenario you're talking about. Uh, It is a a risk that um, the more flexibility you give individual teams with the salary budget, uh, you can have the haves and the have-nots, which is w- what you're talking about. And in leagues around the world, that's what you have. You have one, two, or three teams in a league that at the beginning of the year legitimately have a chance of winning it. And the rest of everyone is, is playing to avoid relegation. Uh, Major League Soccer, uh, and with their playoff structure, which is an American uh, structure for the most part, uh, is avoiding the uh, scenario where there's really only two or three teams that can win it all. Um, I think they would be in danger of getting there if they expand that further to, say, four or five designated players. Um, But then what you have is it's put-up-or-shut-up time. You've got the owners that will have to say, yes, I want my team uh, to be amongst the leaders, uh, and then you do have that risk. Um, and there's other sports in America that have that. The NBA has been one for years now where uh, at the beginning of the year, you pretty much know there's a half a dozen teams that have a legitimate chance of winning. Yeah. When, when you know, anyone who knows you knows that you, in any instance that you've been in, involved in a sport, you, you're really focused on fan engagement and focused on community building. And you kind of turned that on its head in one of your projects recently. I remember not too long ago you were selling ownership rights to fans and allowing voting rights on the on the board. And that's really unique 
in sport, you know, you talked about spending and salary caps, but for fans to actually have a say in this, it's kind of a unique. I wonder if it's it's a good. Well, it's unique in it's unique in America. It's not necessarily unique worldwide. I mean, Barcelona is a club. Let's let's yeah. not forget that. In uh, in Germany, in the Bundesliga, uh, by law, uh, fifty plus one percent of uh, the team must be owned by uh, the public. Uh, there's a couple of exceptions to that with community-based corporations. Uh, but it is common, as Jamie said, throughout the world to have real fan input through supporters' trust where – because I, this goes back to the team being a community asset. I think there's too many American ownership groups and, and, and American sports management that believe the sports teams are about them. Sports teams are a unique business. They're businesses, don't get me wrong, but they're community assets. So these owners, these management groups, they are caretakers of the teams. Um, we use the term own owners, um, but really it's the fans that these teams belong to in, in their heart. So, yes, I would love to have it become more commonplace in America that uh, the fans actually have a chunk of ownership. Uh, U.S. Soccer Federation uh, sanctions uh, limit uh, how much of that can happen. I, I, it, there must be a single individual owner of at least 35% of the team. Uh, but since the Jobs Act of 2012, American um, securities law now allows businesses uh, to be crowdfunded, have you know, equity crowdfunding. Uh, and it doesn't have to be 65% or even 50%. It, it can be 10%. Yeah. Or fifteen or twenty percent ownership by the fans, and you can sell shares for you know five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, and make voting rights contingent on maintaining your season ticket level. You can limit what areas the fans can vote on to specific areas. Um, uh, Chattanooga FC in uh, NISA, the uh, former league I started up, is going in that direction and has great success in selling a, a minority percentage of their team to the fans. Uh, there's a number of amateur teams throughout the country that are set up in the same way. So, yeah, I'd love to see more of it happen. It's interesting because, I mean, your your point about ownership or an individual being the person that, that owns, runs, and, and is the team, I think has been a big criticism, Jamie, of, of yours, of public funding for these stadiums and this <clears throat> type of uh, infrastructure. Yes, it has in the past. And certainly, I mean, I, I feel that way today. You know, I, I don't think that public funds should be used for private assets. Um, but I think to Peter's point, and it's a good point, I mean, what would the White Sox be without the fan engagement? They, they would – there is no value there, actually. I mean, yeah, you can have a, a franchise that, that plays games, but a franchise that no one pays attention to or doesn't care about – is an asset that's worthless. So I think you're right. There's no ownership there. I wonder if you could talk, and you know, we should actually probably thank some of the people that make this station possible real quick. But after the break, I do want to talk to you about the USL, which is, you know, the, the second division in this country. I'd also like to ask you some questions about uh, where you think U.S. soccer is going, because it's, it's interesting. The Chicago Fire at the nexus of another situation, and, you know, they've hired away the U-17 coach. And last I looked, I think there's five open positions at, at U.S. soccer on the men's side, and I think four on the women's. So I'd, I'd love to get your take on that. Peter, can you stick around with us for a little bit? Absolutely. Thanks. Beautiful. Hey, so you're listening to Radio Free here on WLPN. We'll be back in about 90 seconds. 
Did you know you can now stream Lumpin' Radio on your favorite internet-connected devices? Just say, Hey Alexa, play WLPN. Lumpin' Radio from TuneIn. And don't forget, you can take us with you anywhere you go. Download our app in the App Store. Lumpin' Radio. Make all your robots play us. You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio, and this is Radio Free Bridgeport. We're talking with Peter Wilt. We were talking about the Chicago Fire, the move to the new stadium, uh, a new logo, which people have mixed reviews on. I know uh, last time the I'm not team- sure it's really mixed. <laughs> it's I only hear one side. Yeah, it's almost 100% negative. <laughs> so what la- is it? It looks like a, a, a spork or something. It's, it's sort very of a star. Odd. It, it's it, it's a crown. They say it's a crown. I, there's no legitimate connection to the city of Chicago with a crown. Um, the colors are actually that of Real Salt Lake of Major League Soccer. Oh, yeah, right. And so the, the logo doesn't have a connection. And Chicago has so many iconic symbols that could have been you brought into You mean like it. the fire symbol that was on the Chicago Fire logo that I believe Mr. Wilt chose? Yeah. The or municipal even Y he the often The municipal used? Y, yeah. There's – a ton, and uh, it, it yeah. would have been great to carry over one of them, or somehow have that connection to the original fire. It's something that I hope the new ownership and management is proud of. That it's a legacy they would want to carry on, uh, but it seems like they want to make a clean break from every part of the history, and not just with the logo, but with the the team motto, which was uh, tradition, honor, passion, and was actually created by the supporters themselves. Um, Members of of the barn burners actually came up with tradition, honor, passion. And then to just ditch it, and not just ditch it, but not come up with a new one from the fans. They came up with a new one from a marketing agency. And and that's disengaging with your fan base. Yeah, also, they do have an opportunity. I want to say though, to to get it all back, they could be the heroes if they just say, you know, we want to put this on pause. We've heard you. Um, maybe we have commitments that we can't change things for this year, but we want to sit down um, with representatives of, of, of the supporters and the fans in general and have a discussion on how we can make this right going forward. And then all of a sudden. They are engaging, and they've become um, the solution rather than the problem. Well, I think you've said two really – first of all, two really interesting things here. I think when you say the new owners want to make a clean break with the past, I think you're dead on, which tells me they're embarrassed about their recent past. And and that's a a bad thing for any franchise to be. If if you're not confident about the product that you've just purchased, it, it raises a question of why you purchased it. But the other thing that, that has struck me, and, and I'm not a design geek or an art guy, but you, you both happen to be wearing Chicago Fire logos in here. I think I still have some Chicago Fire clothing in the back of a closet somewhere if it survived the fire. There's good prices on MLS.com. There is excellent, not that excellent can, prices. That's not a call, that's not a call to action. But <laughs> that logo is all over this city. That logo is is still popular on cars, and you're, you're in Little Village, you're in Pilsen. People still have the shirts. The team – I think people dropped out a little bit on the logos they never did. And so for, to me, to give that up is a terrible mistake in branding. I can understand if you're uncomfortable with the fact that the team, and let's not put too fine on a point, they stunk. 
They stunk for quite a while. But, no, I mean, they did. They sucked. And, and, the way that I had to justify this, and Peter's probably about to prove me wrong, sadly, but it was the only thing I could do is say that because they're moving back to Chicago and owning that name at this time, there might be brand confusion with the actual emergency management Chicago fire. Or, or because the team, it, well, it is such a, a, a great logo and cipher of the, it, the it actual is, fire department. The, the only thing that gets more attention than the Chicago fire soccer team is the NBC show. And then that that is a problem for them, but that's a totally different problem than what we're talking about. It is a problem if you Google that you get the times that this is on NBC and it's got nothing to do with the soccer game. That that's something that if I was consulting with them, I'd say, "Boy, you better get some internet help on that one because you're you're in trouble." The last time my friends and I started a petition, it was to bring the fire. The last time you started a petition, it was to bring the fire to Bridgeport. Um, which, well, it almost came to Bridgeport, but that's another story. <laughs> but the, this time we had to start one. To get the mayor involved in the logo and see if she could <laughs> do something about changing uh, or, or actually ordering the team somehow. You should, we haven't figured out if there's actually an executive order about team logos. You for should the text mayor, 80 but. right now. If 80's at the press conference, text her right now and say, Lori, can you force this team since the mayor's given a speech right now? You should ask. But no, I mean, Peter, you, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this to, to blow smoke. I mean, it's a great logo, and, and it, you did a great job at the start launching this team. I, I'm just – it's got to be heartbreaking that that a lot of the stuff that you built the foundation on um, is now being thrown by the wayside. And it's not being thrown by the wayside because somebody's come up with something better or – they're making a mistake. And it's a pretty obvious mistake that none of the fans like. Uh, can you give us your reaction? I'd like to put it in context, though. I think, as I said earlier, there's some really good things going on with the team right now, the new ownership, uh, the new – Technical side management, uh, the move to the new venue uh, is all positive. And I, I think this miss is a big miss. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but as I also just said, there's a huge opportunity right now uh, to make it right, not necessarily to go back to the original logo. Maybe it's come up with a, a new logo that takes part of the old one. or That doesn't uh, look like a spork. <laughs> <laughs> the sporkless ones, yes. Uh, so – they actually could turn this into a real positive, and I, I'm hopeful that that part does turn around. And, you know, when the team ends up playing on the field, hopefully there will be some good performances, some good outcomes, and in the end it's still Chicago's soccer team and, and we should all embrace it. And at some point, uh, you know, no logo is forever. Even, you know, we think of the Chicago Blackhawks as a, the classic Indian head logo. It didn't start out looking exactly like that, mm -hmm. you know, 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's um, morphed over time. Uh, so, you know, I, even though it, the team feels like my baby, uh, I understand that babies grow up and they change and and uh, they find uh, others to live with. And, and that's all good. Um, and the fact that people have complained so vociferously about this makes me feel good, that there's still so many people – that are so passionate about this team is um, something I'm, I'm grateful for. It, to your point, that might be an opportunity. I think it has reinvigorated people back to the uh, the old the old logo itself. Uh, we just mentioned the mayor and and the logo. She actually tweeted today that she's very excited about the new merchandise days at the White Sox. You yourself have already mentioned it. You're a big White Sox fan. Uh, anything you're hopeful for this season? Oh, it's it's crazy. When we went into the holidays, you know, I was optimistic. 
you know, I, I was thinking, you know, we'll, we'll be over 500, we'll get 83 wins, 85 wins. And then, of course, in the last several weeks, holy cow, have things improved. So, you know, maybe the bad thing is the expectations now, at least my expectations are unreasonable. Um, in reality, it, it's probably going to be 87 to 89 wins. But I, I'm in my mind or my heart, maybe I'm hoping for 95 plus. And uh, it, it's the lineup, the, the batting order from top to bottom is going to be so good. And maybe not necessarily this year, but a year from now. And the fact that we have so many contracts um, through 2023 and That's even 2024, yeah. you get a group of talented players that can stick together uh, for three, four, five years. The, um, the benefit of that it's incremental over time, more so in soccer than baseball, but um, because of the interaction of the team on the field, being dependent on being familiar with your teammates. Uh, but even in a more of an individual sport like baseball, that um, knowledge of your teammates, that camaraderie has huge benefits. So I am, I've never been more excited to be a White Sox fan than I am now looking forward over the next uh, five years. And, you know, we're talking off air about um, the revitalization of, of Bridgeport and the Remova Theater hopefully going through a remodeling. And for me, the Remova Grill next door to it, which uh, yep. the chili was always near and dear to my heart. <laughs> sure, my wife and I ate breakfast every morning. It was a revelation when I figured out that you put the chili on the potatoes. And then, thank God, it wasn't open for very long after that. But <laughs> 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 it might not be here. <laughs> so I think this, yeah, it's, uh, it's good things are happening on the south side. Yeah, finally, finally. Speaking of which, tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now, because you're working with a league that I think the USL at one point was going to come into Chicago, and I know you were working on that. I, I believe that is now no longer happening, or the project's kind of on the back burner. To be determined. To correct. be determined, yeah. Because they were going to open that up as part of Lincoln Yards, correct? correct. Yeah. So what, first of all, tell people who may not know what the second division is. People may not even know we have a second division, uh, because there's no promotion and relegation in America, and I'm not going not gonna to get into the promotion and relegation uh, argument. Uh, that's, that's for crankier people on Twitter. Uh, but the, the USL, you've got kind of an interesting project now, and the USL existed for many years when Major League Soccer did not, and has been kind of a continuity in American soccer uh, from the days of the NASL and the MISL. Uh, right up to now. So t- tell us a little bit about what's going on in this in this lower division. Sure. it's uh, USL is the oldest continuous pro soccer league in America, uh, going back to the early 90s. And it's now takes up the second, third, and fourth divisions of American soccer and has hundreds of teams throughout the country. The second division uh, has 30 teams, including many reserve teams of MLS teams. Uh, the third division has 12 teams, including a few MLS reserve teams. And then the fourth division uh, has close to 100 teams nationwide. So this is really, I'll say, community soccer. These are teams in a medium to small cities. And my current uh, job is to go around the country helping these new markets launch and then uh, working especially with supporters groups, the fan bases who are really the heart and soul of these teams and helping facilitate uh, engagement with their communities and with uh, their ownership. So when you say they're kind of community organizations, I mean, obviously the Indy 11 were a USL team and you were just up in Madison working with them. Tell us a little bit about the kind of expectations at this level, because, I mean, 
lower division soccer around the world, I mean, is mainly seen as a proving ground for players to come up the ladder. Uh, but I mean, I think the closest thing to American listeners might be minor league baseball. Is that a, a fair analogy for yeah. what the USL is doing? I think so. Um, you know, expectations for attendances range from a couple thousand a game to as many as you know thirteen to fifteen thousand fans a game. Uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, is a team that's uh, drawing uh, on the higher end of that scale. Sacramento and uh, my Indy Eleven are both over ten thousand fans a game. Uh, the team in Madison I just came from is averaging about five thousand fans a game and selling out every game. Uh, so th- those are the numbers. But more importantly, I think is their connection to the community, especially as it pertains to the supporters group. Some of these more successful teams, their supporters group is a reflection of the community they're in. Uh, the one in Madison uh, very much uh, does that. As you know, Madison is obviously a more liberal city, more progressive. Uh, the membership of the support is there, um, reflects that the diversity and what the supporters do, not just for the team on game days, but out in the communities, uh, raising money, uh, connecting with social organizations, serving as a platform for nonprofits, and really being part of making Madison a better place to live, work, and play. And that's the type of connection I'm trying to facilitate with uh, supporters groups throughout the country. Now, some of these teams, though, have made the jump up to uh, Major League Soccer. Do people still start these teams with the idea that they can then turn that into an asset that the last one, I believe, traded hands for $350 million in, in Charlotte. And while I have some opinions on on that, uh, is is that still part of people's business plans at that level? I think so. Well, it depends on the market. Certainly, uh, the larger markets, I mean, some of the examples uh, that you were alluding to are Cincinnati, uh, Minnesota, Portland, Seattle, yeah. um, uh, Montreal, and now the ones currently in USL Championship um, are uh, Indianapolis, for one, um, Sacramento, uh, uh, San Antonio. I think there's some others that would like to be positioned for a jump to Major League Soccer because the value of the team obviously becomes much greater in MLS. But I don't think anyone goes into it thinking the only reason they're getting into this is for a payday to be in MLS in the future. One of the things that uh, I'm, I'm always curious anytime we talk to you, Peter, you uh, are traveling around the country now um, probably more than, than often, and, and um, you have a bunch of interesting habits. I'm, I'm interested to learn if, <laughs> That's a good way to put if that. you have any new ones, but one of them Hobbies, I guess, is more appropriate. Are we talking grave stalking, Jen? Yes, we are. Awesome. So tomorrow <laughs> I'm going to El Paso, El Paso, Texas, to uh, work with the uh, USL team there. And so I did a little bit of research, and it, it turns out that uh, Sherman Hemsley mm-hmm. from uh, Good Times, yep. the, the Jeffersons, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. not Good Times, that's John Amos, uh, from uh, the Jeffersons, is buried in um, El Paso, Texas along with um, Goose Tatum, the Harlem Globetrotter star. Oh, right, of course. So uh, they're in the same cemetery. It's a military uh, cemetery. So those two are on my um, radar to visit while I'm in El Paso. 
chicken and the egg, are you traveling uh, <laughs> for, for this purpose, or uh, are you often uh, the chicken is definitely it? the USL? <laughs> oh, I wasn't the, suggesting that work didn't the come egg first. Would be Sherman Hemsley. <laughs> well, I, I, what I guess I was more curious is of the place that you're going. Are you are you at any point traveling large distances from that? Uh, nexus for work uh, at any point? Oh, there's no. There's, long distances are not usually needed. There's uh, celebrities uh, buried throughout the United States. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. You know, one of the things we were talking off air about also, uh, and, and of course you do a lot of work with these guys, so I don't want to put you on the spot, even though I, I love putting you on the spot. You know, U.S. soccer obviously is in a bit of a transition period. They've just, you know, elected a new president, elected a new technical director. And as you know, we've noted, they've just lost their U-17 coach, uh, Rafael Wicke, to the Chicago Fire. A lot of people look at that organization and um, see it as a bit rudderless. You know, they're all also obviously facing a lawsuit from the, the women, and that's a, a very complex issue. But on the men's side, um, the the teams haven't been very good. Uh, there's a lot of vacancies at the coaching positions. As a fan, you know, Peter, what is what's your take on what's going on down the street on on Prairie Avenue? Well, I think the transition, you know, transition is always difficult. Change is hard, and with Sunil Gulati being replaced by uh, Carlos Cordero, uh, that's a major change. Sunil was a, a, a leader, a strong leader for. U.S. soccer for a very long time, and to take him out of the equation really is a disruption. And then with Dan Flynn, the executive director, also moving on uh, recently and not formally being replaced yet, that's even a further disruption. Uh, So, yeah, change is always difficult regardless of um, uh, the path forward. And in this case, uh, the path forward seems to be a bit unclear. I think you know the positives out of it is that membership of U.S. soccer, whether it's the pro teams or the youth council or the amateurs uh, or the athletes, have made it clear that there needs to be a better path forward. Um, there still doesn't seem to be a sound, practical uh, answer to what that path forward is. Uh, but the fact that more people are dialed in on it, I think, is a positive. I think maybe, you know, five or 10 or 20 years ago, very few people in the American soccer landscape cared or knew about the federation and what all went into it. I think at least now more people are dialed into it and uh, for better or worse are are paying attention to it. Uh, So there's more accountability, I think. Um, But there's little reason to see a whole lot of positive coming of it in the, the near future. People are very dialed in, by the way. I would agree with you on that. More people, even when I was covering it and I was pretty dialed in, I, I now talk to people just in passing, whether it's at Mars or Maria's, and, and people know. People know the names. That, people you know, who didn't know Jay Berhalter from a, a – you know, I'm not going to say what I would say, but uh, pe- people know what's going on there, and they, they know – there are problems to that point outside of the the management side and the 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 business of the federation or who's running the team um what do you think the given that people are more engaged what do you think the community uh throughout the u.s seeing all these um smaller market teams larger market teams understanding the mls what do you think the uh, the u.s's um, opportunities are for fan engagement well i think 
and is at least going to start not answering the question, but I, I think uh, American soccer fans now have the international soccer market as a, um, a target. They, they see that and they think and they say, why not us? And it's international soccer is so much more tangible and within grasp now than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so I think expectations are, are much higher among American soccer fans. Um, as far as the engagement, you know, I think there needs to start to be at least some lip service because I don't know that we've even gotten that, that outreach. Uh, and the outreach has to happen not just from the highest echelons of U.S. soccer, uh, but I think from, um, you know, the state level and uh, the youth, the athletes, the professional and the amateur, I think there's opportunities for all those levels to do outreach and at least create forums for talkbacks and participation. Um, when you start to get that dialogue going, it, it should distill what the issues are and create some potential solutions, and it will force the decision makers to defend their actions. Um, so I, I think, you know, I'm a big believer in the benefit of communication. I'd rather have an organization over-communicate than under-communicate. They may not – you might not always like their answers, but at least you get to hear their rationale and their justification. You know, U.S. soccer, I'm sure they have their own reasons for not filling those youth coaching positions. We may agree. We may disagree. But, you know – Personally, I really don't know what those reasons are. And if they, and that's just one example, if they would just go out and, and, and say, well, this is why the positions are open, uh, and then the controversial policy they've instituted of having all the yeah. coaches moving to Chicago, you know, lay it out, explain it, and then give an opportunity for feedback from the public, and then get this discourse going so that. We may not always agree on every issue, but at least we'll feel more like we're part of one family rather than right now. I think there's a sense that um, the leadership of U.S. soccer is U.S. soccer when the truth is U.S. soccer is everybody engaged in the sport in the country. Well, I think you're also talking about a piece of the feedback loop in other sports that's missing because one of the big feedback loops that we don't have in soccer is around high school and college. And because those programs have been essentially hollowed out, um, particularly at the college level, that's been very dramatic with the emergence of MLS teams. That's a, a hugely important uh, piece of information for college basketball and, and college American football. Um, the conversations that happen about players, the conversations that happen about tactics, about everything from branding and marketing, honestly, to uh, athlete recovery and, and maintenance, uh, and all the social issues and political issues that go along with that. Those are important conversations that take place in, in virtually every other American sport, including hockey. And we don't get the benefit of that now in soccer because those have been completely skipped. Uh, and the rationale was that because college and high school was not were not producing top quality players, and this was a, a policy under Sino Galati that we were going to form our own academies as they do in the rest of the world. But in doing that, what they did is they did break something that Americans, I think, hold very dear, which is their affiliations. And we've talked about this affiliations to colleges and to their schools, um, which is unique. 
quite frankly. Missing that, I, again, I don't know if you agree, but that has always seemed to me, and it's accelerated now, that has seemed to be a huge part of the puzzle that's missing. And until that is either replaced or gotten back somehow, and I don't even know if you can get it back, that is going to be a hindrance to us. Yeah, it's. I, I don't know that it's so much been hollowed out as much as it's been transitioned from the academic programs to the pure sport development. Uh, the college um, athletes have transitioned to lower division soccer. Uh, the high school has transitioned to academy soccer. And you're right, the social dynamic doesn't transition very well at all. Uh, I mean, that's the beauty of high school soccer and high school any sport is a social aspect. You're playing with lifelong friends. You're getting leadership opportunities you may not get with an academy program and you know, similar in, with the college programs. That is missed in the transition. Uh, but I think the actual um, technical and transitions ultimately in a very positive way when you focus on the game. Uh, but there's a trade-off for that for sure. So you mentioned uh, you know you're traveling a lot outside of the uh, the grave stalking and 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 thinking about those markets in soccer that you're looking at. Um, I'm interested in you have a u- unique perspective on this. What you're seeing around the country, uh, things you're hopeful for, things you're concerned about, um, and you've been in a lot of markets that people probably haven't been lately. Well, from a soccer standpoint, uh, and one of the reasons I, I took this new position with USL is that. One of the final frontiers is the growth of the spectator game in medium and small markets. Uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, to me, is kind of the poster child of this concept. You know, know, certainly 20 or 30 years ago, I never would have thought there would be a successful soccer team from a spectator standpoint in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And now there's actually two of them going on, two professional teams. uh, and with different approaches, different levels of success and such. But um, it's fascinating to me that a small market like Chattanooga can embrace it. Madison, Wisconsin was another. And over the next – well, the World Cup is coming to the United States uh, in 2026. And by that point, there could be another 40 professional teams – in the United States. Um, that's how many markets there are now that just don't have pro soccer. Uh, the largest markets, and we're, they're dwindling. The potential second division markets are dwindling. You can probably count on two hands, you know, Milwaukee, Baltimore, Buffalo, New Orleans, uh, Des Moines, Little Rock. You know, I'm sure I'm missing some. But there's not that many without a pro soccer team. And then you're going to be at a point where Gosh, certainly the top 50 markets in the U.S. will all have professional soccer teams. And then on top of that, for probably more for Division III, uh, you're filling out uh, smaller markets. Um, uh, the Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So one of the teams I'm, markets I'm working on is Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Truth be told, you know, three months ago before I started this, I couldn't have told you for sure between Sioux City and Sioux Falls, which one was in South Dakota. It is Sioux Falls for the record. And now one of them is where Chris Hauser came from. 
came from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. There you go. And yeah. that's the one we're working on. It has a, a younger demographic. Um, Citibank, I think, moved their credit card division there. And it's yes, brought in a right. ton of jobs. It's attracting uh, young adults there. And they're, uh, they're booming. And so Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, which is actually a, a larger one and yeah. probably more for a second division team. Uh, so uh, filling out – that's how America becomes a soccer nation is not just having New York, L.A., Chicago, having uh, 30,000 people go to their games. It's having Birmingham, Alabama get 10,000 uh, people going to their games and caring about the sport. Yeah. And – I think Syracuse have a team or, you know, somebody like that. I, I get it. It's the minor league baseball. Um, yeah. the, the, the next step of that, which I don't think I'll live long enough to see, and the true final frontier, and oftentimes people say the final frontier for soccer is getting participation in American cities, inner cities, especially in uh, African-American uh, populations. And that's certainly an, an area uh, for growth. But I think the real final frontier is rural America, you know, getting – um, soccer to be seen as a cre- credible, legitimate sport in t- uh, rural towns of 10,000 to 20,000 throughout America is something that is going to be difficult to make the change. Um, I think the opportunity is that there are so many new Americans near and around those communities uh, via uh, agricultural employment that if they stay in those rural areas and become part of the soccer program and part of the community at large, they can get the sport to grow so it won't simply be baseball, basketball, football in those towns. Yeah. Well, Peter, it's been great having you you on here. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. We really, really appreciate it. As always. Uh, Peter, you mean, this is kind of ridiculous. You don't really have a website or anything, but people can look at Twitter. You can look at Peter Wilt on Twitter. At Uh, Peter Wilt 1. And you should. And on Instagram. And and on Facebook. Anywhere you can find him, I'm sure (laughs) you'll be entertained. And you can find out more information about the USL. It's actually USL.com, isn't it? Uh, Still still USL.com. USLsoccer.com, I believe. USLsoccer.com. Uh, we're coming back after the break. We're going to uh, hit a quick hit of Size Matters. Then the Sunshine Boys are going to be live in Studio A. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. It's Lumpin' Radio. It's radio free. We'll be right back. Size Matters. Size Matters. With Kyle Seismankowski. Hey there, my producer, are you sick? No, it's allergies. Ah, jeez, you sound like the Trekkers after a three-day marching powder binge. Ugh, I know, it's awful. I know, guys. Have you noticed how many episodes start with, I knows a guy, or this dude over here? Uh, no, what's your point? You've never noticed anything weird? Uh, no. Like, I don't have a recorder, and yet these episodes keep appearing. And we seem to keep moving from, ugh, jeez, scenario to scenario. I, I, I mean, do you ever wonder if we're, like, inside a simulation or something? Huh, well, everything seems all right. I mean, uh, we beat the digital land in that simulation back in that Size Matters 71, and, and that was like 17 episodes ago if I can do Matt right. I mean, that's what I mean. We keep talking in episodes and making references no one cares about. Listen, Jess, I got what's going to cure your allergies, I swear. Now (sighs) you got to come see this guy. I'm just, this is just going to be a mess of sound effects and then a jump cut. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? I mean, how did we even get here? We walked the entire way from the co-pro. 
Uh, you got a burrito at Martinez, and I didn't even get a bite, so I don't oh, even... Oh, yeah, I still have that half in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hand-warming burrito. Anyway, this is Pooper's place. Uh, Everyone in Undertown swears by him. His name is what? I don't know, like Steve or something, but uh, we all could call him Poopers. I'll, you'll Suddenly see why. I'm not super sure about this, Kyle. Oh, whoa, 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 what is that smell? That is the medicines. Hey, Poops, what's going oh, on? God, it smells like Sasquatch's socks died in That's here. the natural medicines. My producer here's got some allergies. Maybe you could, uh... The allergies of Bridgeport. Yes, the dab and the trees and the bowl. Ugh, seriously, what is that smell? It is a secret substance blended right here of all natural excretions. Yes, I'm telling you, I had cancer and poopers, he cleared it right up. I cannot believe that. Let me just smear a little of this here and here under your nostrils. Just breathe deep. Oh, it smells awful. That's the medication. Oh, I think I'm going to puke. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Hey. Wait a minute. I stopped sneezing. You just put a little of this on your lip every morning for a few minutes and no more allergies. What's in it? It's a proprietary blend. I can't believe more people don't use these natural methods. I hate that this is working. I just wish we could spread the message to more people. Well, maybe we can. Do you think this is really a good idea? Well, Pooper says this is the way he gets the immunity herds. Uh, by smearing whatever this gross gunk is under people's doors? It's genius. Everyone touches it, they get the immunity. I, I'm just not sure. You're so pedestrian. We're going to be hailed as heroes. I, I'm just not sure. Listen, you take a couple bags of this, and I'll take a couple bags of this, and we'll start hitting these door handles. But is this really dog sh- Not entirely. Oh my god, I'm gonna be sick. No, you're not. Your allergies are solved. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. Up right now, live from Studio A, in a John Daly session, we have the Sunshine Boys. They're going to be playing their new single, Infinity Girl. That's coming off their sophomore album, Work and Love. They're also going to be playing stuff off their debut, Blue Music. Right now, produced by Ari Shellist, it's time for Sunshine Boys. More and more questions She tore open 
letter and pulled each paragraph apart. She says, My Valentine loves me by the scruff of his scuffed up heart. She thought it was one of them too, but she knew that it might never be. How did someone so lost ever find their way to me? Don't disturb 
the dreamers in flight as they glide through the night and flirt with the wine spawn moon. They go courting the muse while ignoring the news and snoring through afternoons. If you feel dizzy and down, if you're now lost where you once were found, it's just a world turning. It's just the world turning around, turning around on you. Oh, the simple becomes so hard when it catches you off guard. Right out of the blue, what can you do? What will you do? Such a long way goes back such a long way. It's just the world turning round. The world turning round. It's just the world turning around. Turning around on you. Sunshine Boys on drums is Frida Love Smith. I'm Doc Julen on guitar. The, this next song is our, our upcoming single, which is coming out this Friday, and um, it's called Infinity Girl. Curbside, we are obsolete. We don't begin until our feet meet the streets. You better fall in line, sir. She's 
from our first album which came out in, in 2018 and uh, that album's called Blue Music. Uh, the first song we did today was also from Blue Music, Questions, that was called. This one is um, uh, called Schoolyard Bully. Little man, undermine, don't understand. Conqueror divides the land. Soft boy, tiny hands, you succeed and we are damned. Schoolyard bully, he's speaking his mind. The more that we look, the less that we find. White, no soul, just appetite. Left is wrong, might makes right. Sleepers wake, take up the fight. Keep your hope, hold on tight. Schoolyard bully, he lowers the bar. He sets free the monsters. Signs. The warning sign is the sign of the times. Beautiful, turn ugly, dutiful. We must be in no time to wait and see. Dedicate 
Okay. All right. Um, once again, that's Frida Love Smith on the drums. I'm Doug Julin on the guitar. Okay. And uh, not with us today is um, our bass player Jackie Schimmel. Hopefully, she's listening. Hi, Jackie. I'm trying to make you proud. Um, here's something then from um, from the uh, forthcoming album, Work and Love. This is a song called In Between Time. Ride. 
it's in between time it's in between time it's in between time I'd take it all off your shoulders if I only could I'd take it all off your shoulders if I only could I'd take it all off your shoulders if I Shoulders, if I only could, if I only could. We are going to play one more for you right now. We're going to go back to blue music and we're going to do a song called Only a Million Miles. And they, they, and we All we do is disagree Is that the way it's supposed to be? She and she and me and you We know what we have to do Declare ourselves the cleanup crew
You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. We're back with Radio Free Bridgeport. We've got the band in the studio. You just heard the Sunshine Boys. Welcome, guys. Thank, Thank you very you. much for having us. So we've got uh, Frida, the drummer. Yep, Dog, Dog, the guitarist. Hello. And as Dog mentioned, uh, there's one member of the band that's not here because she's doing a merger, right? She's a big She's a big shot. Yeah, okay. she's and lawyering. So, yeah, she's she's very busy right now. She sends her regrets. Well, we really appreciate that you guys came down and you were able to do this. That was awesome. Super, Thank you so much. super excited. Yeah. So pleasure. tell us a little bit about, I mean, I, I, the backstory of you guys um, is probably... Well, I don't think it's known necessarily to anybody necessarily listening to the show right now, but your backstory is of with bands and with people that people do know. I mean, you were in the Blank Babies, am I correct? That is correct, yeah. And you were in Point Dog. Still yeah. am. Still am. So yes. there you go. Yeah. Uh, and how did this project then come about? I mean, you, you were with Jillian Hatfield, too. and all. So, so what happened here to make the Sunshine Boys? You guys were in pretty well-known, popular 90s bands that I'm getting texts about uh-huh. from people right now saying, wait a minute, the Blake Baby? Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. Right. So yeah. what's going on here? What happened? Well, we, um, we, we met each other five or six years ago, and we realized that our bands had played together at Lounge Act. Well, we didn't – I mean – uh, my band, the Slugs, mm-hmm. I forced us on the on the bill at Lounge Axe years ago uh, with the Blake Babies because I was such a huge fan. But anyway, when when we started getting to know each other, um, we were drafted by some friends of ours, a couple of songwriters, uh, who just are sort of a guitar and voice combo, like a, um, a snarkier kind of uh, Simon and Garfunkel, mm-hmm. and and they wanted to fill out a band for some performances, and they asked us uh, separately, I think, and and then. Um, when the the bass player they had in mind couldn't make it, I sort of uh, leaned in heavily and I said, "Look, I got this. Trust me. I, I know the bass player that I, that I think is going to be great." And that was Jackie, and it was really kind of a thinly veiled, covert effort to get Frida, myself, and Jackie playing together in some capacity. And when we started working on their material, we we knew that we wanted to play together. And I'd sort of pitched the idea to both of them separately. I just thought that there'd be a great combination and it turned out to be a really good combination, yeah. And I have to add that the name Sunshine Boys came out of kind of a joking barroom conversation about about our long backgrounds in music mm-hmm. and how, I mean, that, that show that Dog mentioned that the Slugs opened for Blake Babies, that was in 1991. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Right. Like we're we're, we are like the vaudeville veterans <laughs> of our day. Like the Sunshine Boys references, it's no accident. Right. Um, yeah. But we, you know, we just jokingly said when we first met each other, like, oh, if we ever start a band, we should call it Sunshine Boys because we're old and we've been mm-hmm. in this business for so long. And in some ways, it seems like a preposterous thing to start a band at this point. But it has been weirdly effortless and so much fun kind yeah. of a surprise and you guys are doing a tour in fact with your old bandmate we are we're touring with juliana um we're gonna do quite a few midwest states with her we're gonna play in nashville tennessee with her which is also where the other blake baby john strome lives mm-hmm. and so there may be like a little blake baby's action dropping a hint right here yeah, in the public. Hint. yeah. <laughs> if, you go, if you go down to nashville you might see it you yeah. might see a very very brief blake baby's reunion uh but you're playing right here locally you're playing at evanston at space more importantly we're playing at space on the 16th, 16th. of january okay, exactly. sunshine boys and juliana hatfield it's going to be so fun that's the first date of her, her tour okay so yeah that starts off for us cool we yeah. want to we want to make sure that people know space evanston 
the 16th. Thursday the 16th. Thursday, Thursday the 16th. It's a good night to go out and see a band. It's a great night. A- it's a any great night, place. Yeah, any night at Space is a great night. Space is a good place. Fantastic place. You mentioned a new uh, a new project coming up as well, a new album. That's correct. Yeah, we're um, we're in the process now. It's all it's all been the recordings have all been finished, and now we're getting mixes back from um, Matt Allison, who is a, a engineer of note around here and has produced tons of really great records and produced our first one. And so now we're sort of finessing the mixes that he's submitting to us. And then we're also, the artwork is kind of being finessed. And so we're, it's all coming together for a May 1st release of, of the record Work and Love. But more immediately, our first single from that record is coming out tomorrow. Oh, wow. Right? No, is tomorrow what Thursday? Is today? Today's, Today's Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, so I don't know what day it is. I think it's Tuesday. I'm a drummer. Right You've heard the joke. <laughs> We're um, both drummers, too. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, boy. You're in good uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thursday. But who's and, delivering the local pizzas if you guys are both here? Oh, it's true. You can't get a pizza from Phil's at all. That's love. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thursday, uh, January 10th, our single Infinity. Okay, you're going to correct me again. Thir- uh, Friday is the 10th. <laughs> Thursday's the 9th, I'm just going to shut up now. No. Well, there's going to be a sneak. There's going to be like a preview of it oh, on yeah. Thursday the 9th at a site called Power Pop Aholic. And, yeah, I think it's run out of New York. Oh, so and it's a website. It's a website. Oh, sure, okay. Yeah. I was thinking this is a place I've never heard of. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. They're premiering the single, nice. Infinity Girl, a feminist anthem. But we just heard it on the air, too. Yes, exactly. So, so in a so way. technically, it's already way. been premiered it on Lumpen Radio. right here on Lumpen. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah. Yep. Screw you, New York guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about uh, the new album's coming up. Matt Allison, actually, we've heard that name before. Didn't he do um, was somebody who he just did the mixes for? Alkaline was- Trio he's done. He's done the Websters. He's done, like, um, the Lawrence Arms. He's done a— Cole? Yeah, I think he also was doing something. We had uh, we had the band, the Avondale Ramblers, in here mm. the other day, which is, of course, Sean from uh, Double Door. Uh, ah, that's his right. side project. And I think one of the guys was working with him on that because they do this kind of Irish rock thing, which is hysterical if you know that guy. It's really okay. kind of, kind of, <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's, it's very authentic. <laughs> yeah, I know Sean, so I imagine it's, uh, but, it's got a bit of an attitude to it. it. Oh, yeah, definitely does. He's a good guy. Yep. Uh, Work and Love's coming out. Pravda Records, one of the things that uh, I, I thought immediately, you know, nowadays, so few people release records. They just come out on streaming services. You yeah. know what I mean? And you watch it on YouTube. Are, are you guys excited to actually have like physical copies of this and physical wax and be able to hold this? I mean, how important was that for you guys as, as a band? It was really important. It's, I mean, again, we that's something that we aspired to. Uh, you know, being being old timers, you know, we just we still we still like it. It's still a thing, you know. It still a, represents all this work and stuff, and you know, even you know, requires at least some amount of effort to actually insert it into the player. You have some <laughs> tactile relationship with yeah. it, you know. But uh, yeah, it's it's important for us. Yeah. yeah. And we're working with an amazing illustrator, and that's such a fun piece of it for me to like create something beautiful that's that looks great visually and that that sounds really good too. Yeah, I mean. I, it's amazing to me, you know. I I uh, collect. I've collected albums for a very long time, and and uh, I, you know now I I have such a hard time because things are on streaming services, and I feel like oh you know I can just listen to it anytime I want. And the truth is, you actually can't. You know, like unless you have that physical copy and own it, 
um, you actually don't have any kind of connection to the artist at all. You don't yeah. have any kind of, you know, relationship with that music. I mean, right. when I when I take out my old, and this is, I'm dating myself, when I take out my old Rolling Stones mono copies, mm-hmm. you know, and I put them on, like, and it's all crackly and crappy. That really reminds me, though, of like, you know, my, my mom gave that to me. You know what I mean? Sure. She Absolutely. was listening to that. Yeah. And I remember all those things about it. So it's it's really cool to see people, you know, instead of just, oh, it's going to be out there on the cloud somewhere and we're going to put it on SoundCloud, that you guys are actually releasing physical stuff. That's huge. As, as Frida said, it also, it also is an opportunity to present a package of artwork that's representative of how we feel or things that, you know. We're taking it sort of literally with this because as it's called work and love, we're like, let's take some pictures of some things that we love. So it, it's it's a further bit of expression for us. And it's also an opportunity to work with a really great designer and just kind of present a whole package. It's going to be up there streaming away and that's fantastic, you know, but um, it's just, you know, still means something to us to have that. And of course, you guys have such a legacy in the business. I mean, did you? I assume you moved to Chicago, right? From Boston, or I moved um, from Boston to Indiana to England to Chicago. But I've been in Chicago for about nine years. Okay, why'd you go to England? Um, I was working. I, I got a master's degree over there. Oh, nice. Where yeah. at? At um, Nottingham. Oh, very cool. Yeah, in creative. I, I grew up in Scotland, so oh, that's get why, out. Yeah, was we had the. Uh, we, we, the joke was my hometown at England's uh, third best college, which was St. Andrews. So, <laughs> so I, awesome. I know it very well. So, uh, no, I mean, it's it, you guys are, have been around for a long time. You've you've seen um, you guys actually now that I think of it, especially both the Blake Babies and Point Dog went through kind of the last hurrah of the record label era where people were signed up to labels and dump trucks full of money were pulled up to their house. How much has the the business changed for you and has it changed any kind of relationship that you have from a work point of view to, to the art? Um, you know, it's, it, it came at a weird time for me personally. Um, I was, at, I came at the very tail end of, you know, Poydog has been in this evolving lineup of, of people that started off in Hawaii and then, you know, Austin, Texas. So when the Austin people moved to Chicago, I, I got in there, it was like 92. Mm-hmm. And that's when their their troubles with Sony were sort of fizzling into a non-relationship. And there was a, these efforts to get involved with other uh, labels and things like that. And at the same time, um, I became a, a father, you know, and I started. And so that took me away from the industry side of things. That took me away from the, the chasing the record deal. And I was and I think as people of, of my generation, of our generation, our kids are kind of a little bit older and we can breathe again. And as we're sort of coming out of this cloud of dust, we're realizing we still want to make music. And the, and the industry has totally changed, but, we're, but there's still something that drives us to make music. So uh, the, the world of, of record labels and stuff, Frida's been through much more of that rigmarole than I have. So I can't necessarily speak to what it's like to I, what I can speak to is being like the only band in Chicago, the Slugs that didn't get signed. You know, we sort of held the door for everybody else. Like, have a great time there. Uh, you know, urge overkill. You know, congratulations, Liz Fair. You know, so uh, you know, so we didn't get necessarily signed, but um, we saw that happening all around us, and we saw people get burned out. You know, and and then as the digital age took hold. All those record, you know, I think it's true. Right around that early '90s thing is with the dump trucks were the money. Uh, it just um, and and then a lot of people got burned out and beaten down by that whole experience. I think. Yeah, definitely, and and I would just agree with one thing Doug said about how different 
the businesses now. Like I find it completely unrecognizable, mm-hmm. but it's fun to try and, and navigate that and figure out how we can still put out music in this whole new world. Like for example, we're doing pre-sales for our album on Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. We're launching a campaign this week. And I mean, that's that's not, that wasn't a thing when I first started making records, but it's actually, it's kind of cool and it's kind of fun. And it's like an opportunity to interact with listeners in a, com- a totally different way. I'm, in a completely direct way. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I kind of like it. Like I'm getting used to it, mm-hmm. but it's it's interesting. Like I, I, I just definitely spent a lot of years like turning over a lot of the business and, and the kind of the power of the process to record labels that it's sort of interesting to be the boss of everything. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've been interested in and have talked to people who, who've been in um, is Chicago itself as, as a place for artists to make music and create things. And how are you finding during, during this project uh, the city at this time opposed to other times you've, you've created here? Um, I believe when, when we were really pounding out the, the rock music on a, on a regular basis in the slugs, there was, there was a lot of different options to, to play a lot of different clubs you could play at and there might still be that kind of thing but we're not necessarily in that situation where we're chasing down any possible gig we can get i think having been through a few things we're kind of like gosh i don't know if we want to be first or second on a four band bill that doesn't start <laughs> till 10 p.m. and it's three flights of stairs up you know what i mean it's kind of like um there's still there's still there's lots of new places that I obviously haven't heard of and lots of lots of different scenes developing and um, but the city itself uh, is still a great music town. It's always been a great music town, and there are people who will really get behind you. And there's so many so many great musicians and so many good bands. And I love the camaraderie between different bands and musicians. There's there's little pockets of places like up in Evanston, there's a great scene. Then if you get out to Berwyn, then there's a kind of a Fitzgerald scene and stuff like that. It, there, I, I just think it's a, it's a vibrant town and I'm very much inspired by my peers as I am by anybody else. The, the quality of musicians here is, is world-class and I'm constantly uh, you know, in awe of the people that are around here on a regular basis, you know. I can't imagine there's a better city in the world for playing music. I'd, I don't think I'd be playing if I lived anywhere else because there, here there are people to play with. There are so many venues. And most importantly, people come to shows in yeah. Chicago. It's not like that everywhere. Yeah. Sure, is, yeah. This place is amazing. Yeah. So do you find that uh, there are people willing to one of just to kind of back up one of the things that we've found in having we've had live bands now on for close to a year plus uh doing the same thing you guys did playing out there with Ari mixing it and, it and it's been great but a consistent thing that we've heard is that musicians have said that right now in chicago um they're finding a lot of people from different genres who are willing to work with them and collaborate on different things which some of the older musicians uh, that we've had on the show um, say wasn't necessarily the case depending on what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the younger musicians, I'm, I'm specifically thinking back to, to Seema in, in Ohm, saying that, you know, oh, one day we're going to go sing on, a, on this hip-hop project because we've been invited to, and tomorrow, you know, I'm, I may be playing guitar for a, a jazz thing, and then we're doing our own stuff tomorrow. That that kind of cross-pollination and fluidity seems really interesting to me personally. I wondered if you guys had kind of seen that in what you guys are trying to do. It's a really good point. I think I think it, that might be a thing that might be might have benefited from 
the the streaming element of Agreed. music. That, that you, uh, as an artist, you can post your songs instantly, directly. You can share that sort of side of your music with people. And, um, you know, as the, as the corporate record uh, industry has kind of, you know, failed to define itself for a long time, independent scenes are bursting up, you know, and I think that there's a sense of community among independent artists. And I, I you know, I don't want to sound corny, but I was walking around here, I, I went to get some coffee and I thought, man, this, this neighborhood, I love this neighborhood. This is a vibrant thing. There's the presence of artists and stuff. And I really felt like, you know, I, I felt like I want to, I want to, who's, who's making music here? I want to look into this. I want to discover it. You know what I mean? I think there's, I think there are these scenes that are developing and people are much more open-minded, I think, towards music. I think the musical barriers are probably, you know, in a good sense, kind of dissolved. And people are, are you know, a punk rocker can work with a rapper and stuff like that. It's just, it's an open-ended thing. And I think that's healthy, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we actually are, have a surprising number of musicians in Bridgeport, too. It uh, makes sense to Vivi, me. What, Vivi Lightbody's right around the street. Lawrence Peters is down Panerai. here. Panda Riot's right around, Killer Drones. We, it, it's surprising how many good bands and, and then people that work with other musicians. Yeah. Uh, and, and we've got two record labels also in the neighborhood, which is very unusual. I mean, Mississippi Records just moved here from Portland, Oregon. Uh, and International Whoa. Anthem is here. So well, I mean, that's like that's like you know, HipCon 5. Yeah, out there it's very odd. <laughs> yeah, Dead Moon's record label is down the street <laughs> no uh, at, a, at a warehouse, wow. which is incredible. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, and it's interesting, the streaming thing, uh, because that is something that a lot of the other musicians have said. You know, streaming, some of the older guys had said, you know, streaming, I, I went from being on a, a tour bus to a van. Yeah. And that wasn't necessarily a negative thing. You know, they didn't put it that way. Some of the other people... We'd kill for a van. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. so, it's all relative. Some, some of the other people, though, were like, well, you know, I until I was able to work in my bedroom and put this stuff out, I didn't even know that people liked what I was doing and, and I had this connection and communication. I, I think it's really interesting because the business standpoint of it, as you pointed out, I mean, th th there are no record labels right. anymore. I, I was kind of wondering why you even had a record label. I mean, Pravda's been around for a long time and <laughs> I get it. You they're know, friends. Yeah, they're friends, you know. Yeah, they're you still, know. But they're still doing it. They still, you know, they, they've moved into a kind of an area of licensing music yeah. to TV shows and stuff. That's been a, a very strong thing for them. Yeah. And, of course, TV still pays a lot of money for TV for is the new radio, as they used it to is. say. Yeah. Well, I mean, Easy Habits, I think, got 50K from uh, – Miller uh, Miller Light to do that wow. Chicago commercial last that's year. That's a super funny thing to bring up because, um, you know, uh, coming through the scene here in the '80s and '90s and stuff, it was a big deal. It was a deal, uh, and you can you could you could even speak to this from a Boston element. But when a band called the Insiders here in town signed up to do a an old style beer commercial, mm -hmm. they were they were you know it was like it was like they had killed a child or something people were so so negative toward them yeah. it seemed like this thing about oh man you guys sold out and stuff and this was this was this kind of intolerant right. uh, punk rock thing that kind of you know permeated a lot of the scene and there was this, this suspicion of the sellout and totally and the del fuegos yeah, right del fuegos mm. with the budweiser yeah and, and it was this thing everyone hated them everyone hated that. them right but like yeah. i'd I'd totally do a Budweiser. Oh my like, God, call me yeah. Budweiser sure. when you're listening. <laughs> let's, let's do a Halliburton commercial. <laughs> yeah, right. Didn't the Doors do a Ford commercial? Yeah, they did. The, uh, doors? the doors? I thought the, the doors. door. I thought the Doors always fought that fought against that, but I don't know. I thought they. I thought I don't know. I yeah. thought Ray Manizarek took the money. 
He will take the money. The the other guys didn't want to take the money. But so it's turned into a thing now that anybody, you know, everybody would kill to license to a commercial. You know what I mean? And so, but like I say, the poor insiders, they got signed to Epic Records and they did this Budweiser, old style commercial. And they just were just, people were mocking them and ripping them. And they, you know, they got paid a decent amount of money to do this, but it was so weird. You know, they, and they went through this corporate epic record things where it's like here's a here's you know they recorded an album they made videos they tried to get hit singles then they made a second album they're like nope we don't want any of it you're done and then it leaves the band in free fall and they didn't they didn't last that long after that you know it's unfortunate it's really unfortunate but it's completely different now it's totally different yeah so Anybody listen? Beer company. What do yeah. we want to do? <laughs> whiskey. We like to. Yeah. Brian Eno did a cat food commercial. We we could do that. Yeah, we could do a cat food yeah. commercial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that'd be great. Yeah. I would. I would love. Yeah. I like, I, but the idea of Brian Eno scoring a cat food commercial is actually <laughs> really charming. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's, it's super charming. Uh, we're talking obviously with the guys from uh, the guys and girls from Sunshine Boys. They're going to be playing at Space in Evanston, Illinois, on January 16th. Their new album is out on May Day, and the single Infinity Girl is out on Friday, right? Yes, correct. Uh, Should we mention another show? Sure, go ahead. Uh, this Saturday. This Saturday. Yeah, um, we're playing with the Vulgar Boatman at Shuba's. Oh, okay. And that's an early show because I believe they have a late show. So this is a nice early bird special. So for if you're an old man like myself. And us too, right? Yeah, we can, yeah, we can get in there. And We're talking 7 p.m. I was yeah. going to say there's no <laughs> stairs to <laughs> no, Shuba's. <exactly. laughs> it's, a, exactly. it's a flat run. I know. Yeah, somebody's like, are you sure it's a 7 o'clock show? And I'm like, yes, sir. It really it's is. the early bird special. Nice. That's awesome. You yeah. know, it's funny. We do shows here at the Cope Prosperity here because we're in a residential area. We end at midnight. So I'm I'm a big fan of the play at seven o'clock i think that's totally. wonderful you can get a bite to eat get some mm-hmm. coffee. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm totally down with it get home uh, for the network news yeah well i mean <laughs> i don't want to miss micah mataran i'm stealing i mean you know, come on you know let's be real here um before we let you guys go uh coming up uh obviously on the heels of this album you're going out with juliana hatfield what else do you guys have planned i mean this is your second album uh mm-hmm. You know, you guys have been doing this for a very long time, as I think is obvious. Stop reminding without, us, man. Without, <laughs> you know, dating you guys. Uh, what's next after this, though? Oh, our, our hope is to get out on the road some more. We, we want to have a higher profile in Chicago. We'd like to do some, some more shows. Maybe there's, maybe there's some fe- – what we'd really love – is to is to get a support act for somebody who's going to be going out. Yeah, like the Who. The Who. I'm going to write to the Who. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, that's what uh, we're thinking. That's our first uh, choice is to yeah. go out with the Who. That's probably what we'll be doing most of this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Touring with the Who. We also we um, we made a video for Infinity Girl, and we're hoping to make a couple more videos for this record. And like part of our thinking is, like we mentioned, how fun it is to work with a really great illustrator. Is that we um, had opportunity. To, to work with an amazing filmmaker, Jen Reeder, mm-hmm. um, who is actually Chicago Filmmaker of the Year. And her her feature, um, Knives and Skin, is out right now. And she directed... Oh, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. And she directed the video for Infinity Girl. Oh, that's oh, awesome. And we're talking to some other very cool directors to try to do very a couple cool. more videos. So yeah. Yeah, we, we want to collaborate with artists that we love. Awesome. Yep. Jen yeah. was here, actually, a couple months ago. I think she was talking to um, the Bad Sports Kids about her film. So that's great. She's amazing. That's yep. awesome. We had a field trip and went out and saw the movie. Yeah. Great. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, again, guys, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so we much. We really, really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Uh, Sunshine Boys, you can find out. Do you guys have a website? 
What's yes, your website? Uh, sunshineboys.net. Sunshineboys.net. So, and it's spelled it's spelled exactly as you think it is, folks. Mm-hmm. There's no crazy Z's or Y's or Q's or anything in there. No. New album's out on May 1st. It's called Work and Love. Single is out on Friday. You can catch them in Evanston at Space on the 16th. And if you're in Nashville on the 18th, there may be a Blake Babies reunion. So Correct. you can go catch that. Guys, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Hey, Thank you. Thank you. Next week, it's A.D. Quig. Other Lee's going to be in the studio. There's going to be some other guests. We're going to have a good time. You've been listening to myself, Mr. Jonathan Daly. Thank you. Sunshine Boys. Thank you to Ari Shellist, as always. This has been Radio Free. We'll catch you next week at 6 o'clock. You are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio.